Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. We've got a great show uh, lined up for you today. And in just a minute, I'm going to introduce our special guest, uh, Mark Leibovich. Um, But before I do, I want to be able to acknowledge that it's Thursday, which means my partner on the show uh, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss himself, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC. Kevin, you and I... Uh, I think both have really enjoyed plunging into uh, Leibovich's uh, new book. Thank you for your servitude. Yes? <laughs> Absolutely, Bill. You know, I always look forward to Thursday mornings in this show, but I'm not sure I've ever looked forward to it more than I look forward to it today. <laughs> well, with that said, let's introduce uh, Mark uh, Leibovich. Um, for more than a decade, Mark Leibovich uh, worked at the New York Times. He was a political correspondent in the Washington Bureau. He became the chief national correspondent for the New York Times magazine. He's now a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he is widely admired uh, for his profiles of the famous, infamous, and hope-to-be-famous people, uh, primarily in Washington. He writes about political uh, figures, media figures, sports figures. Uh, uh, It's wonderful to me to think about something his now boss at The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, once said about him. He called Mark one of the, he called him the most important journalist and then said, quote, uh, for his ability to profile subjects and make them look like rock stars on the one hand and to make others look like complete idiots, which I think is a. (laughs) I forgot you said that was a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, he said that year before he was your boss, right? Long Amazing. before. I think it was when yeah. when your book this, when your book This Town, which was a big bestseller and made the New York Times yeah. bestseller list, came out back in like 2013. But Mark, let me just in in uh, setting up our conversation, uh, point out that you tell us in Thank You for Your Servitude that the Trump International Hotel, that glittering pleasure palace that Trump opened just weeks before he won the election, really became a a centerpiece for all of the characters that surrounded Trump. And um, and a lot of the events that happened during his before, during and after he lost the election uh, actually played out in one way or another at the hotel. And so you basically set up shop at the Benjamin Bar, in the lobby, at the BLT Prime Steakhouse, and watched that parade of characters, which, by the way, Mark, I thought of being probably as scary as the ghosts in Stephen King's Overlook Hotel (laughs) as I was reading your book. All right. All that said, so we're going to talk about the book, but we have a headline that relates to Georgia. It also, in many ways, relates uh, relates to what you uh, have written about in the book. Um, we just learned uh, overnight in a piece by from Maggie Haberman that um, John Eastman, the the lawyer who came along and who was the mastermind of this plot to have uh, fake electors take the place of the Biden electors, January sixth committee has told us about all that. We have now learned that, in fact, even after President Biden was inaugurated, John Eastman hatched a plot to have the election, the special uh, runoff Senate election in Georgia investigated as fraudulent in the hopes that it would reopen the investigation that he and his cronies wanted to have of Georgia's uh, 2020 presidential election. It's, as you say, with Trump, there's never a last gasp. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like as if we're going to find out in a year from now, like 10 other things that they've tried to do in the next year that will happen in the future, trying to do something. And there's someone writing a letter or filing some bogus brief or something. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, there is never a last gasp. We are now in, what, year seven of the gasp. Um, and, uh, yeah, much of the journalism, unfortunately, that's sort of ongoing here is about the gasp. There's always another one. Um. You do set the piece uh, largely uh, through your experiences of seeing people at the Trump Hotel. And I have to read you back to yourself a line that I think our listeners will love. You say that the Trump International Hotel was like cheers for the MAGA set, except instead of Norm and Sam yucking it up over Norm's tab, you had Corey Lewandowski mugging for photos with some leather-faced groupie from the villages whose grandson might harbor Proud Boy aspirations. <laughs> Tell us what it was like to watch the parade in the in the hotel. Uh, it, it was something. I mean, well, well first of all, before, before I tell you, just briefly, uh, thank you for that very kind introduction and also for having me on. I was just sort of hoping that, that you guys could just talk the whole time because I was really enjoying it. But um, anyway, it's great to be here. The, the Trump Hotel was, as, as you said, and then as I said, that it, it was basically the capital of Republican Washington. It was uh, this beautiful place in the old post office building um, on Pennsylvania Avenue, exactly, uh, you know, exactly halfway between the White House and the Capitol. Um, and it opened, you know, as you said, a few months before Trump came to Washington. And you could go in there, and me and other reporters did. I mean, like several days a week. I mean, I didn't go several days a week, but there was always people in there. And you would see, like, a lot of the White House staff. You would see many key members of the administration after their days of, um, you know, all kinds of drama, which we learned about, you know, either in real time or later. Uh, Secretary Tre- the Secretary of the Treasury lived there. Steve Mnuchin, his wife, lived there for a time. Rudy Giuliani had a place there. Uh, you know, you'd have a lot of Republican congressmen coming in after their Fox hits at night. You'd have groupies and hangers on. You'd have every person from every Trump fan who came to Washington as a tourist sort of had to go see uh, Cinderella's castle. And part of the reason was Cinderella <laughs> herself or himself would come into dinner there, you know, I think 30, 40 times in the course of his presidency. I mean, Donald Trump would eat at one place outside of the White House. Um, in his four years in Washington, and that was his own hotel, the steakhouse there. And that was always quite a scene. But you could get a lot of work done. Um, you could, I mean, as you mentioned before, I mean, the, the planning for Charlottesville happened at the Trump Hotel. The planning around the Ukraine deal that got him impeached the first time was there. Some of the planning around the January 6th um, rally and riot was there. A lot of the, some of the key players stayed there. Um you know, while Trump was sort of building this, you know, violent and ultimately deadly crowd to come to Washington to overturn the election, which of course is the headline, uh, he was also, or someone was also, jacking up prices at the hotel to two thousand, you know, dollars a night from like the usual six hundred or something. Um, so yeah, it was. I mean, you mentioned Cheers. Uh, you mentioned what was yours? The ghost in the, the Stephen King. Those, I mean, yeah, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, right? Yeah, the Overlook <laughs> Hotel, yeah. Paul Ryan, the former speaker, called it the Star Wars Bar, which is sort of like become a bit of a cliche, but Ryan himself didn't go in there. But yeah, no, I, I picked up a whole lot of stuff there. And, um, you know, it wasn't fun. I mean, say, so, okay, great. A reporter goes to work at a bar and, and hotel and just looks around. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't look like America, to be honest with you. And um, a lot of the stuff went down there. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Hey, um, Kevin, one of the things that Mark tells us, and he kind of alluded to it a minute ago, is that after Trump set out his infamous tweet uh, <laughs> to come to Washington, be there, it will be wild, uh, he points out to us that the uh, rates for hotel rooms at the Trump Hotel, like, skyrocketed. It went from, what, about 500 bucks a night to well over $1,000 a night, Kevin. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other, the other, like, really, among the many hilarious details in the book, there was a, a guy, a blogger, actually sort of made a living tracking uh, who came into the hotel and how often, uh, just uh, uh, because people were so interested in it. Um, so, Mark, in this book, almost none of these Washington characters uh, – Really, no one comes away unscathed, right? So um, I just have to ask you, of them all, 
you know, and here in Georgia, Lindsey Graham's very much on our minds. But of all these yeah. folks that you that are part of uh, the folks uh, who who play the roles in this book, who do you think stands out as the worst of all, in your view? Oh boy, I mean, you know, people do point to Lindsey Graham and, and Kevin McCarthy. They sort of are one and one a here um, as people who spent so much time you know, trying to stay in or win the good graces of Donald Trump. I mean, they, they really became, you know, absolute sycophants. And, um, you know, both of their careers sort of righted on him, and a lot of their sort of self-definition righted on him. I mean, in Graham's case, one of his colleagues in the Senate said that there's no one, none of these, none of my colleagues need this job more than Lindsey Graham does. He needs to be in the U.S. Senate. He needs the pen. He needs the staff. He needs the parking space. Um he needs the recognition, and you know he, he doesn't have he's not, doesn't have a family, I and mean, he doesn't have a lot else in his life. He just loves to sort of be around, be in the mix, be on the golf course with Donald Trump. Being, being he's always saying, you know, you, it's like being at the dice table. I, I get a lot of my sustenance from from there, um, and you know we see what he's been willing to do. I mean, from from you know going from like 180 degrees and his contempt for Donald Trump when he was running against him in 2016 to saying much the same privately about him for four years to basically doing so much of his bidding, including getting himself in the middle of um, you know, the efforts to overturn the uh, the vote in Georgia. And um, yeah, so that's Lindsay and Kevin McCarthy. I mean, his singular focus in life is to become Speaker of the House. Uh, if Republicans win the House in November, as seems you know, somewhat likely right now, he will probably be Speaker of the House. And in his mind, everything he does, um, all the indignity he's undergone will be redeemed because that's what he wants. And that's sort of all he thinks about. He doesn't think about history. He doesn't think about ramifications. He just thinks about the day-to-day expediencies of keeping Donald Trump happy um, and getting the job. Um, and sort of it comes down to the two of them. So they were, I think, both the most extreme examples of, of what the book is about, which is essentially the story of the Trump years through the perspective of the, the, the enablers who, who allowed it to happen, um, but also someone who will and, and does and will have real power, um, you know, if he, especially if he becomes Speaker of the House. So these are extremely consequential figures. Um, you say, one of the things you say about Lindsey Graham uh, and, and get, putting him in the context of the hotel is that he, he loved going to the hotel because, as you say, quote, no one would pester him at the hotel with those tiresome, what happened to Lindsey Graham questions that so many of his old judgy Washington friends were asking. Mark, it's always struck me that after John McCain died and, and Lindsey Graham t- made his pivot to Trump, but there's a part of Lindsey Graham that's kind of always looking for a father figure. You know, I mean, he had McCain in that role and then he had nobody. So Trump became the next best thing. Um, yeah. I, maybe going from one good father to a troublesome one. <laughs> I, you know, he you know, related to that. I mean, Graham in his own memoir, um, which you know, one of the things about writing a book like this is you read all the memoirs that no one else reads. And, you know, these are, this is primary source material. You can pick up a lot. I always do. Um, you know, I wouldn't recommend reading almost probably ninety-eight percent of all political memoirs, or maybe even ninety-nine point five. But you know, there are public servants like me who read them and sort of come up with the stuff that's worth knowing. But he he did say that from a very young age, he always looked for alpha dogs. Uh, his father was his alpha dog. He was the only child of, of two bar owners in Central um, South Carolina. The town's name was actually Central, was a geographical Central, it was the town name. Um, and he just used to be a tag-along guy. He was kind of the mascot in the little bar. They called him Stinkball. Um, and his dad was the alpha dog. In the Senate, John McCain was his alpha dog. Um, huge, larger-than-life figure, got him into rooms around the world, all these really exciting, you know, sometimes dangerous war zones around the world. He's always in the middle of something, some high-stakes negotiation. And, you know, one of the tragic and also just very bizarre parts of this is you know, within a few months of his best friend McCain dying in uh, 2018, I mean, preceding it to some degree, but but ultimately he kind of traded up to have an alpha dog in the person of the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And even to this day, they golf together all the time. He loves to be seen as the guy, right? Trump, the, the sidekick, the uh, 
Pancho Sanz. Sanz was it Pancho Sanjo? Who else? Help me out here. <laughs> yeah, Don yeah. Okay. Pancho Sanjo. You got it. You're you're Pancho. you're on top of it. Yeah, Pancho or Stinkball or whatever you want to call. So yeah, that's a pattern with him. Uh, Mark, you know, you made that reference to reading those memoirs, and uh, just as a as a fellow journalist reading uh, the book, you know, I'm I paid a lot of attention to how you work. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, you, of course, do a couple of things, including apologizing to your readers for having to recount some of these terrible events in order to set up, you know, to set it up so they can understand these characters better. But and, and I do want to ask you about your uh, Hope Hicks taking you in to meet the president. But before that, uh, I, I, I got to uh, ask you, these people, the things they've said to you, the what, the things you get them to reveal. I mean, how do you do that? Why are why would they tell you some of those things? <laughs> You know, that is a, uh, I've been getting that question for a long, long time. And, um, you know, I don't have a good answer. Um, you know, and, and I, I think, I think part of it is knowing, I, I, I mean, I, again, I don't know. I mean, obviously my, my incredible charm and good looks, which, you know, unfortunately the <laughs> listeners can't, can't do the good best part, but I mean, that has to be part of it. Um, part of it is just like the ability, I mean, just, Learning to act, to to not be embarrassed to ask stupid questions. Learning to what to listen for. Listen to answers hard enough so you know when to jump in with a follow up that they can't prepare for. I mean, anyone who's covered politics knows that politicians do probably eighty percent of the thinking on their feet while they're doing their little um, their little. Um, well, you know, I think what you need to say there's like the setup where they do their thinking about how am I going to sort of escape this question. Um, and, and you see a lot of it with good sort of cross examinations, you know, good hearing work, you know, the January 6th committee that's been on display, quick, simple questions. Um, a lot of people, um, and I do this cause I listen to my tapes of these interviews all the time. You, you fall into the trap of, give, you know, just talking a lot, just, just giving little speeches before you ask your questions. And, and I don't know if it's just sort of forming the question or thinking out loud or trying to prove yourself as smart or, or whatever, but. Um, you know, I honestly though don't know. I, I think, you know, obviously a lot of people have this skill. It, I don't know why they keep talking to me. I think, to be honest, a lot of it has to do with having big institutions behind me, whether it's the Washington Post, where I, I spent a decade, and then the Times, where I spent uh, you know, 16 years. So I mean, that that helps, and also just knowing these people. I mean, I've been around DC now for for a quarter century, which is bizarre. Um, and um, that helps too. Um, but I, you know, I have no idea. I, I think for any PR people out there who represent a politician, um, whatever, whatever, just, just like just have everyone talk to me. That's what I do. <laughs> so talk about meeting the president. Hope Hicks takes you in to meet the president. That is, to me, a really <clears throat> interesting part of the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so uh, first of all, so I wrote a piece on Trump in 2016, actually end of 2015, when he was the really the, the biggest story in politics as he was really starting in 2015 and to this point even now. But, you know, I spent about three solid weeks with him um, on his plane, in his car, you know, in his holding rooms. I you know, went to a couple of his golf courses. I mean, it was it was a lot of time, you know, and again, he was very accessible there for a while. I mean, it was, you know, compared to trying to get like a two-minute conversation with Hillary Clinton off to the side somewhere, um, it was an incredible, nimble, incredibly nimble operation. It was Trump. It was Hope Hicks, who was this then 27-year-old, you know, kind of novice, never worked on a presidential campaign before, um, you know, former Ralph Lauren model, um, you know, and actually a lovely person in her own way. And, and that's actually I knew her dad before because of the, between this town and, and the current book, I wrote a book called Big Game, which is about the NFL. It was sort of a, the version of this it's sort of the version of the best book for for the NFL. That was in 2018. And Paul Hicks, her father, was head of PR for the NFL um, during part of my, my reporting there. So anyway, um, I got to know Hope, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, Trump wins. 2017, um, I go to, I guess, the White House to just catch up with Hope. I said, hey, can I get on your schedule? You know, I wanted to see how it was going. And I wandered in, it's probably summer of 2017, and we're sitting in some ornate conference room. I'm sure it, you know, it's either the Roosevelt, some, some, the map room, I don't know, some fancy room. And Hope and I are just sitting there, and it's about noon, and she said, so you want to go say hello? 
and like, well, who? Like Deshaun Spicer to Reince Priebus? I mean, some, yeah, I figured some boss or, yeah, middle manager, you know, just top manager. You know, no, I mean, you know, come see POTUS. Like, he's right in the next room. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't it usually, you know, harder to kind of get on the president's schedule? And, you know, it was apparent to me that, like, people just sort of drop by a lot. I mean, just like, hey, you want to go see the president? And it was noon, and she walks me in. She goes, you remember Mark? And, um, he was off in his little side dining room, which he spent a lot of time watching TV on, including on January 6th. And he was, sure enough, watching TV. Hope watched me in. Uh, he was he was watching uh, Fox and Friends, even though it was lunchtime. He was not eating lunch. He was watching a, a DVR version of the morning Fox and Friends. I don't know if he missed it the first time or if he just wanted to savor it multiple times throughout the morning or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, he said, you treated me very unfairly during the campaign. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't mean. And we talked for, you know, maybe five, ten minutes. And that was that. And, you know, it was close. In the book, I, I sort of detailed the bizarre conversation and how um, I had the weird sensation of kind of wanting the experience to end. I mean, I, I think for a journalist or for anyone to get invited into the Oval Office to visit with the president, you know, whether it's spontaneous or planned, I mean, that's a pinnacle experience, you would think. You'd want it to savor every second. You'd want it to last. And just having him in front of me and just saying those familiar things, you know, it's always a little unnerving. It's like, okay, this guy is actually, he's lived on a screen in our lives, like pretty much nonstop for the last two years, and but even for like the last 40 years, right? And here he is in front of you. He's got the same hair. He's got the same voice. He's got the same you know, mannerism, but he's actually the guy. It's not actually a guy dressed up as him. And, um, but it became tiresome really quickly. And, and I sort of went through a lot of the machinations that Hope and I went through and Hope kind of had to make up a poll of his approval ratings in Tennessee to sort of make him feel good. It was a bizarre little kabuki that, um, you know, was really quite common and, and also quite harmless in the, in the scheme of what we later found out about, you know, what a lot of his interactions were on. Um, let's do this, uh, Mark. I want to pause for a moment, and I'd really love to talk to you about some aspects of the book in which you bring in uh, some of the Georgia characters who played uh, roles in the Trump administration. We'll do that and a lot more, but let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with Mark Leibovich after these messages. Kevin Riley and I today are talking with Mark Leibovich, uh, who is now a staff writer for The Atlantic uh, and is one of the most uh, distinguished chroniclers of life in Washington, D.C., the characters who inhabit that town. And in his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, um, he uh, talks to us about the characters who surrounded Donald Trump during uh, his uh, campaign, the the four years in the White House, and then in uh, the aftermath of that campaign. And one of the things I think it's interesting you say, Mark, is it, when you were putting this book together, um, one of the reasons you you say you talked a lot about the hangers-on and enablers is you say Trump is not that captivating as a standalone character. And then you quote a great quote from, I think, David Brooks, uh, do you remember it off the top of your head? I can find it pretty quickly, but it's a great um, quote. But so is your comment that Trump isn't that interesting as a standalone guy. Yeah, I mean, Brooks is off the top of my head, and uh, you know, the, the direct quotes in the book. But basically, his point, and he said in the column, is you know we're left in this perverse situation where the best minds of the free world are you know spent trying to figure out, you know, analyze the machinations of someone whose brain is basically in some ways just six fireflies beeping in a jar. And, um, yeah. and no, I, I didn't find him. I mean, look, I, I never found him captivating. I mean, he was one of these guys who's been part of the furniture, you know, for again, for 40 years. And, you know, I had the luxury of tuning him out. Like I assume most people did and, you know, enough people didn't tune him out to make him extremely wealthy as a, um, they watched The Apprentice. They made him very successful. Um, I always did. He was pretty harmless because I didn't have to pay attention to him. Um, he became less harmless when he went on his birther kick about President Obama being you know, not born in America. 
um, you know, very toxic thing. I, I would have think I would have thought that would have been disqualifying, which is extremely naive in retrospect. Um, and then, you know, he was done to death. I mean, he was the single biggest political story in America. Everyone was writing about him, and I held off as long as possible. And finally, you know, I had to write about him when uh, the it was clear that he was the dominant force in the Republican Party. Um, and so, uh, but I didn't want to try to out-analyze anyone else. I didn't, I mean, I'm, I don't want to add to the body of psychological analysis of this guy um, I'm not going to be Maggie Haberman or Bob Woodward. I, I'm not going to out intrigue anyone as far as getting the killer anecdote about, uh, you know, him feeding dog food to Mike Pence or something like that. I mean, that's how this book's really come out, right? It's like you get the five or six news nuggets, people get titillated, you get your buzz, you get your Amazon orders. You know, it's it sort of, I, I didn't want to write one of those books. One, because it wouldn't have gone well. Um, it's not really what I do. But I, I wanted to, but I do think that like the sort of larger novelistic story, I mean, true novel, unfortunately, of Washington had gone untold. And, and again, Trump is only in part of the frame. And, you know, one of the first things I try to do when I'm talking about the book is, is explain to people that this is not a Trump book. Uh, I don't want, tr- want to try to write a Trump book. And now, is Trump in it? Absolutely. There are scenes involving Trump. You know, many of them we've all lived through together. But this is trying to tell the story of what it was like in Washington, what it was like in America during these years, um, but especially for those people around him. Because I do think that one of the understated parts of the Trump story is that without the complicity of virtually all of the Republican Party, he would not be possible. So that, to me, is the central focus here. And I'm glad you said that, because that leads me into a question I wanted to ask you. Um as you just said, um, the complicity of this vast array of Republican characters in Washington is a big part of your book. The conversions from uh, people uh, uh, like Marco Rubio, who during the campaign condemned him, uh, uh, so did Ted Cruz, so did all of the other candidates for president, and then fell in line with him. Um, so that's a major theme in your book. And so is Ke- and so Kelly Leffler fits into this. And, and if you don't mind, I'm going to quote yeah. your words from your book. A blatant example of this, you say, is Kelly Leffler, a GOP donor for from Georgia who got herself appointed to the state's vacant Senate seat by Governor Brian Kemp. Of course, we know after Johnny Isaacson retired. Leffler began her new job, you wrote, just in time for the impeachment trial and was clearly in way over her head. She strode around the Capitol with a shell-shocked expression and barely knew a soul on Capitol Hill. So first of all, uh, give us your sense beyond that of watching Kelly Leffler in action, because certainly those of us here in Georgia who watched her had the same sense of her being completely misplaced in that environment. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in fairness, there are a lot of people who are misplaced in that environment, especially when they're plucked from, you know, no one knew who she was. She didn't really know anyone. And, um, but, you know, this, this happens. I mean, she's a big Republican donor. Um, you know, Kemp, you know, put her there for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, it wasn't a terribly popular, you know, within like the Republican infrastructure. Um, wasn't a hugely popular move. You know, the White House, I think, would have preferred, um, uh, who was it? Let's see, Doug Collins, probably, I guess. At that Doug point, Collins, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he'd done a lot of work on, you know, they got to know each other through the first impeachment, especially. Anyway, but Leffler, you know, she comes in, you're right, she, she didn't know anyone, she had a kind of a deer in the headlights look, um, like, again, any newcomer would. But what, what stuck out to me about her was the one person she did have a relationship with, who actually had a friendship with, was Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, you know, she was one of the chairs of his uh, presidential campaign in 2012. Uh, she also, I think, she and her husband supported him in, in 2008 when he ran the first time. Um, you know, yep. it sounded like a pretty genuine friendship. I mean, he'd been to their house a few times. They had a lot of fundraisers, and then they spoke a fair amount. And, and literally, like, within the first two weeks of her landing in Washington, um, she decided, and this was right during the first impeachment, so, so Mitt Romney um, had voted to... He was the one Republican to vote to convict Donald Trump uh, after he was impeached. So Mitt Romney becomes a pretty popular and easy whipping boy among uh, Republicans, you know, for this, you know, heresy against Donald Trump. Kelly Leffler, within a week, um, 
literally, or maybe two weeks, literally put out a tweet just kneecapping Mitt Romney saying, I can't believe Mitt Romney would be so disloyal to sort of side with liberal, liberal Democrats. I mean, the usual kneecapping that has sort of come to be expected. And, you know, no heads up to Romney. Um, and sort of like, and literally brand new walks up to him on the Senate floor like the next day. And, you know, I didn't hear the direct, direct exchange, but I saw the body language and I later got a readout of it, which was that, you know, she sort of said, oh, this is politics, you know, and she was all sheepish. And well, we just sort of looked at him, got her and smiled and, you know, didn't want to make a scene, but, you know, kind of humored her and walked away. But I thought that that was completely emblematic of what happens when someone comes to Washington. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, essentially then yeah. she spent the next eight months, you know, trying to become as MAGA, you know, critical as possible and to put up these weird ads. I mean, you know, she was never comfortable in her skin. I think everything she did proved that. But I thought what she did to Romney was an ex- extremely telling sort of price of, of submission in, in this environment, which, you know, I thought was pretty distasteful. And an example of how the pro-Trump and anti-Trump forces, especially the pro-Trump forces, were basically willing to eat their own in their zeal uh, to make sure that the uh, president understood how loyal they were to him. It was pretty pathetic. I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, I mean, it sounds like, like there's a purpose. You need to eat, like, for sustenance. It just seemed cheap and stupid and unnecessary. Um, anyway, yeah, but yeah, it was, it was it, it kind of a very ham-handed example of much of what we saw. You know, Mark, it's so hard to find uh, any good guys uh, in this book. Um, Romney comes close. And of course, um, I think uh, Liz Cheney, who I believe you're working on a story about her now, but, but yeah. I mean, in, in, as you worked on it, did you, did you see, well, Hey, I finally found someone who seems noble and trustworthy, or at least a little bit noble and trustworthy. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I did. I mean, like I, I was, I found it extremely refreshing to actually find these islands and these, and this, you know, in this ocean of cowardice that, that we saw. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons that Liz Cheney and um, Mitt Romney, but, you know, mostly you know, timely to now, you know, Cheney, has been so admired by so many people and also so reviled by, you know, the Trump forces, is, is that, that she's so singular. I mean, I think she's extremely smart. I think she's they've run a very good hearing. But I, I think that yeah, I mean, I found it to be a breath of fresh air. I mean, I think as a, as a cynical political reporter, I've always copped to be cynical. That's always been a bit of a reputation. I come to it honestly. Um, I think one of the really perverse lessons for me, yeah, for me during these years, has been how much I realize I care because you realize that a lot of this stuff is really at stake. Um, you know, people say, oh, we're fighting for the good of democracy. And, and traditionally, You'd say, oh, that's really overheated, but but it's not. I mean, this is all like pretty bread and butter, and I care. I care about this country, and I I think maybe I, you know, overcorrect and and get you know get inspired more than I normally would by people who are just doing their jobs. So, following up I, on know, that, following up on that, Mark, what's your favorite part of the book? I love to ask an author that. What is your favorite? Oh, great question. Yeah. Uh, other than being done with it, um, uh, <laughs> that is, that'll be the easy answer. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the Trump Hotel stuff is, is interesting only in that it, it, no one really attempted it. I mean, it, it just felt like very, I mean, a lot of people were there. There were a lot of Trump Hotel stories, but it was a really satisfying thing to try to sort of put together five, 6,000 words you know, at the beginning of the book. That tried to recreate, or, or not recreate, that tried to render the world that we've been living through through the eyes of this really kind of cinematic um, environment with, with all these weird characters and all the decadence at the center of it. So I would say that, um, I, you know, I would say also the end of the book was was kind of fun to write because a lot of the themes came into very sharp focus earlier this year. I mean, when I was writing the last few chapters. Um, you know, the January 6th, you know, commission was getting started. The, the Ukraine invasion started. Um, the Trump Hotel had just been sold and was about to become a Waldorf historian. I mean, a lot of that stuff happened. But it was there was a lot of clarifying sort of uh, good guys v. bad guys stuff going on earlier in the year. And actually some shows of real profiles and real courage 
as opposed to the cowardice that underpins a lot of the book. Um, there are those who would say that your writing, um, I mean, you, you're, you're just an extraordinary uh, uh, wit in how you write about some of these characters. Um, and to some extent, I think some people would say have a cynical streak about Washington, which may be which may be, in fact, important for self-preservation uh, in a town where so much of the political uh, 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 folks around town are so cynical about the work that they do. Uh, but you do have heroes. And, and as you said, you do care about the country. And I think I think John McCain and the way you write about McCain in the book and your long relationship with him is a really good example of that, because I, I think it's clear that um, you, you believed he uh, loves his country, uh, too. And, and I think all of us saw in him someone who could be incredibly difficult, uh, wasn't always uh, uh, on the progressive side of issues for those people who care about that. But there was no question he was a true patriot. And you make it clear that that's how you felt about him. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one of the lessons, I mean, I, I, think, I think I intuitively knew this, you know, years ago. I mean, I think we all did, but I think it's really come home lately is you see that, you know, I don't care if you're progressive or conservative, or I mean, Liz, Liz Cheney's not progressive, and Mitt Romney's not, not progressive, and McCain certainly isn't. I mean, it's it, people are very quick to dismiss, you know, so many reporters, so many people just, okay, you're just like a liberal hack or something like that. I mean, this is as, first of all, I mean, their conservatism is a very pure kind of conservatism, but John mm-hmm. McCain, you know, he just sort of, I mean, you know, look, he had he could be full of bs like a lot of people but mccain was i thought he was the real deal he had an extraordinary life i'm always a little biased to people who live extraordinary lives and live it fully and openly and um yeah i miss him uh mark i would like to say though that uh in the 2000 presidential campaign i'd spent most of my uh, uh that campaign the republican side of that campaign uh, traveling with George W. Bush, but I, but I, no. I joined the McCain. I, I joined the McCain campaign at some point, and um, when they were in South Carolina, because I was right next door in Georgia, they said, "Come on, get on the Straight Talk, Talk Express." McCain wants to give you an interview, and I would like you to know, Mark, that I have no idea what question I asked him, but whatever it was. <laughs> It set off in him a volcanic temper tantrum (laughs) that got so that got so crazy that Mike Murphy, who uh, right Mm -hmm. knows was on the campaign, had to come back from the private section of the bus with his cell phone in his hand and said, oh, Senator, you have an important cell phone call. (laughs) We need you to come up front in an effort to cool him down. So uh, I always I I got the volcanic temper, which I know was also a part of who he was. (laughs) Yeah, um, he, he was. That's amazing. Yeah, like I really, I'd love to. Let me know what you asked or what he said. I mean, he did have the. Yes, I'd love to remember had, it. He had a he had a dark side. Look, I mean, he comes to it honestly. I mean, he spent five and a half years in a POW prison. I mean, yeah, God only knows what he went through. Um, so yeah, no, he he was a, a you know singular figure. Let's do this. Let's take the final break of the show and come back. We've got a lot of more, a lot more we'd like to talk about with Mark Leibovich. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Mark Leibovich is very generously uh, spending the hour with us to talk about his uh, new book, Thank you for your servitude, which um, uh, you can buy at an independent bookstore uh, in your community. Uh, you have to buy it online, but we always like to promote the independent bookstores across the Support state of Georgia when we yeah. can. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin Riley, of course, is with us on this uh, Thursday. Kevin, why don't we give you a chance to start things off for this final segment of the show? You know, I think one of the challenges in doing the book, uh, Mark, must have been this spaghetti bowl of scandals 
that you had to somehow <laughs> figure out like any any one of them yeah. um and your effort to, uh, to stay true to the subtitle of the book which is donald trump's washington and the price of submission so um talk about you know I mean, just from a writer's point of view, give, give our listeners a little insight into, hey, this is what I was trying to do, and this is this is why I didn't do some things and did others. Yeah, I mean, God, I love these writer's questions. Kevin, as a fellow, as a fellow journalist, I mean, as a print person, you realize how lonely this experience is, and you just sort of release these things into the wild and, and hope that someone wants to talk about it. Um, you know, that's a real challenge. I mean, and, and you know, you can even – if you can read between the lines here and sort of see that one of the challenges I had was knowing that, you know, most of us know how these stories ended. Okay. We know what happened to Ruby. I mean, like this all, I'm looking, I'm reaching a few years back into history and, you know, there, you know, readers are going to look for any reason to sort of say, okay, yeah, I, I know this looks like rehash and everything. So the, the key is to, you know, not shy from obviously big events, but but make sure you're telling it in a fresh way. And um, you know, I had a I had a I had a really I have a really good editor, um, Scott Moyers, who's the editor of Penguin Press, um, who was worked with me on this, and he was extremely supportive and and was you know very encouraging throughout. And then all of a sudden, I got this email about halfway through. I thought I was just sort of cruising along, and he said. You know, you got to make sure you go back and you focus on A, B, C, D, E, because otherwise it's just rehash. And he sort of reminded me that there are times or there will be times or there are going to be temptations to sort of go into, all right, I got to get this page, these thousand words done today or else the day will be a failure. And, and I think it's just sort of, again, sort of figuring out like where the humanity comes in, what the most colorful scenes are, but, but also how to talk about these colorful scenes in a way that you know draws the larger lesson and and also it always helps to bring laughter i mean i think there was been a lot of uncharted um scorn and ridicule over the last few years because i mean so much of the story for as absurd as it was was never at all that funny but god these people look ridiculous at times and i think you can never sort of try to sort of mold that in your hands like enough to try to sort of underscore how absurd and bizarre this whole thing you know has been um, you're in Wyoming right now, uh, and you're writing about uh, following the campaign uh, that Liz Cheney is undertaking. Obviously, yeah. uh, she's become probably public enemy number one to Donald Trump. Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger are probably even behind uh, Liz Cheney. What are you seeing as you go around the state and talk to uh, voters and watch the candidates on the stump? Yeah, they should have like top 10 rankings every week or top 20 rankings on like biggest enemies within Trump world. I mean, I think she'd be, she'd be number, she'd be top three, you know, pretty much every week. I mean, she'd be Alabama, Clemson, um, of, of that bunch. I mean, what's interesting about Liz Cheney is in some ways she's become one of the most admired politicians in the country. I mean, in the last few months, she got a standing ovation at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, among a lot of sort of traditional conservatives. Then a week later, she got a standing ovation at the Kennedy Library in Boston after receiving the Profile and Courage Award. Um, you know, she's getting all this praise and money from, you know, basically a lot of people on the coast, <laughs> a lot of people in, you know, sort of well-educated, you know, a lot of former Republicans, a lot of Democrats, a lot of independents. And, you know, I think her place in history is assured. I think the, the a lot of people know who she is now from watching the hearings. And at the same time, as you said, none of that's going to amount to a hill of beans here in Wyoming, the Trumpiest state in the country. Uh, it's also the smallest state in the country. There's only 500,000 people here. Uh, Trump carried it with 70 percent of the votes. You know, Liz herself got 68 percent of the vote two years ago. But, you know, now that she has crossed the great one, um, she has, you know, they targeted her and, and the polls look like she's probably going to lose in two weeks and lose her job. And uh, that's a perfect sort of illustration of the juxtaposition between like the admiration and the courage. I think the, the very, you know, worthy admiration she's gotten, but also the very real political danger she finds herself in, in her uh, home state. So let, let me um, ask you about that. Uh, go back to Georgia for a minute, to Brian Kemp, to Brad Raffensperger. Um, I'm curious what you as a Washington journalist uh, thought about when you saw that even though uh, 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 Raffensperger and Kemp were uh, 
hugely attacked by Donald Trump for almost two years, both of them were able to win their primaries. David Perdue got hammered by Kemp in the governor's yeah. race, and Raffensperger easily beat another election denier, Jody Heiss, in the secretary of yeah. state's race. Um, it's it's a fascinating uh, dynamic given what happened, for instance, just the other night in uh, Michigan and Arizona where Trump triumphed. Yeah, no, I mean, Georgia's a fascinating state. And, and I think, you know, first of all, I mean, uh, the post-election stuff, I mean, a lot of like the real, real sort of menace, you know, went on around Brad Raffensperger. I mean, Gabriel, uh, was name? Sherman, I think, you know, who was uh, the, the election, you know, one of his deputies, I mean, gave that yeah. passion speech, um, you know, I think either at the state house, some, you know, somewhere around Atlanta, and then, you know, actually testified before Congress when Raffensperger did. So, I mean, there were some really compelling both voices, but also, you know, victims. I mean, their lives were turned upside down, but also profiles and courage. Um, but also, you know, Georgia, I think, is a uniquely pissed off state. Can you say that in the show? I mean, at Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's Trump public radio. I think Trump, you know, Trump essentially cost Republicans two fairly safe Senate seats. I mean, he, he, um, you know, I don't think the, I mean, Georgia is changing rapidly. It's a fascinating demographic study, um, just what's happening there. Um, but, but also, you know, it still should probably be a red state. Um, and, you know, because of Trump almost singularly, uh, it's not right now. And, you know, because of Trump and, you know, dominating Herschel Walker, it still looks like, you know, the Democrats have a pretty good shot of holding that seat, which I think in a maybe more normal election, you know, Raphael Warnock might be in some trouble if it were more conventional Republican, um, you know, in this environment. So I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, I do. I mean, I think I'm obviously not the only reporter to say this, but I think Georgia is a huge story, both in sort of demographic change in the country, but also the political landscape of the country. Mark, at the end of the book, you really start talking a lot about, I think you used the term rehabilitation of Trump. In other words, um, Trump's not over, I think is what you're saying. So what do you see? uh, What do you fear? Um, do you see another book in four years? I suppose we should ask too. But <laughs> uh, don't tell my wife. I hope my wife doesn't. Uh, I'm just getting up, her back in. Never again. Uh, yeah, I mean, here's here's what I've been saying, and, and I really mean it. Um, you know, January 6th was a chilling and awful period. And as someone who's lived in Washington a long time, the two week period after that was about as scary a period as I've ever lived through because we are we saw what happened on January sixth, and yeah, you'd have tanks in the streets. You had literally twenty five thousand National Guard troops in the streets of Washington, um, you know, which was more at that time than they had in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And this was not to defend the states or the capital from some external force, but it was to defend from the president of the United States and his supporters. Very chilling. And the fact even more chilling to me is that he came back from it within a few weeks. Once again, it became all about making nice with him, kissing the ring, rehabilitating him, which remains sort of the operating premise of much of what the Republican Party still is, which is, if you look at his body of work, you know, ending, you know, in January of 2021, it's a remarkable thing that Republicans still want more of this or could want more of this. So I want to, as we get close to the end of our time, I want to talk about a paragraph uh, toward the end of the book that may possibly be the most depressing lines (laughs) that you wrote in this book, Mark. You, You say, quote, the next wave of GOP members of Congress will almost certainly resemble the less responsible, more outrageous likes of Green, Marjorie Taylor Green, and Gates, Matt Gates, more than Republicans such as Senators Richard Burr of North Carolina, Richard Shelby of Alabama, Rob Portman of Ohio, all of whom are retiring. In other words, it's hard to foresee that the next GOP majority in Congress will usher in a sober period of reflection, pragmatism, and comedy. You know, Mark, I grew up with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I grew up with advice and consent. I became a political journalist because I respected the institutions and had a real love for um, what Washington could be. And that paragraph 
really helps me understand that we are headed, if we don't do something quickly, in a really bad direction in terms of being able to continue having that feeling about our country. Yeah, I mean, look, if if Republicans do well in November, um, you know, you get the feeling that Senator Herschel Walker or Senator J.D. Vance or Senator Dr. Oz or whoever are not going to be the Republicans who lead to a period of reflection and reckoning and you know, again, like I said in the book, comedy. I mean, it's com- maybe maybe comedy C O M E D Y, but not comedy C O M I D Y. I'm going to make sure on radio, right? Um, but yeah, no, it, it's depressing. I mean, you don't exactly see, especially in the Republican Party, like the a next generation of people who look like statesmen right now, um, and the ones who weren't. I mean, have all kind of lost. I mean, a lot of those who voted for Donald Trump's second impeachment to either have retired or lost. Um, you know, the extremely courageous Rusty um, Bowers, uh, who's the Speaker of the House in Arizona, testified before the 1-6 committee. You know, he lost his race um, in Arizona on Tuesday. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's sort of depressing. And I think, you know, it sort of de- starts with what's happened with the Republican Party. Well, the book, we should point out, is not all depressing. It is in places <laughs> one extraordinarily, extraordinarily funny because nobody, nobody can uh, 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 describe uh, people with quite the sarcasm and wit that Mark Leibovitz does in this book. Uh, so I really um, am grateful that you came and uh, did the show with us, Mark. And Kevin Riley, of course, I'm glad that you were part of this conversation today. Mark Leibovich, the new book. Thank you for your servitive, your servitude. Mark, again, thank you so much for spending time with us on Political Rewind today. I hope it worked for you. Oh, that was great. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Kevin. Um, actually, those are tremendous questions, and I love coming on. So uh, anytime, we'll come back one day. All right. I'll take you up on that. We're out of time. We'll be back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.